0: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment Podcast, a member of the Charisma Podcast Network and the Edify Podcast Network. This is episode 34. Hopefully you checked out last week's episode with the Benham Brothers. It was a really enjoyable episode. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a chance to listen to it. They had some great wisdom and they're just a couple of great guys. Being that I'm a part of the Charisma Podcast Network, I do write articles for the Charisma Magazine. You can find those at charismamag.com. I wrote an article recently entitled to the Benham Brothers episode. So make sure you check those out. I usually post it on my social media following. So definitely check me out at Discerning Dad on Instagram, Facebook. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Faith Social, and I'm also on Twitter. If you would like to join my Facebook group community, you can search on Facebook for Everyday Discernment Podcast Community, and I post things on there that I don't post anywhere else, usually info on upcoming shows, or if I just recorded an interview with somebody, I'll post it in there. So feel free to join. It is searchable, so it's not a private group. And for today's episode, I talked to Ben Corson. He's a pastor, and he's championing about depression and suicide, bringing hope to those who are in periods of darkness to know that there's a way out. So we're going to have a conversation about that right now.
1: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. This show is about you and your walk with Jesus as we grow in discernment together so that we can make better daily decisions that honor God in all we do. We will align all things against the Bible and give you practical steps to run your Christian race to win. And now your host, The Discerning Dad, Tim Ferrara.
0: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. Thanks for being back with me, or if it's your first time, welcome. And I'm excited today to be here with Ben Corson. He's an international best selling author, speaker, TV radio personality, and a senior pastor of Applegate Christian Fellowship. Ben travels the globe speaking of God's hope and igniting revival in the hearts of his listeners. His newest book, Flirting with Darkness, which I can't wait to talk about, is about building hope in the face of depression. Welcome to the show, Ben. Stoked to be with you, man. Me too. Thanks for thanks for just agreeing to come on. And it was so cool to connect. And I'm just looking forward to talking with you and and seeing where the conversation goes. So, let everyone know just a little bit about you and your family and uh, whatever history you want to share.
2: Yeah. So I have a cat. His name is Bridge. <laughs> I, I I googled fat kid names and. uh I have this fat Persian cat. He's, he's amazing. He's got like a smushed looking face. He's yeah. just a cotton ball. He, he really looks like an alien Yoda from the planet Hoth in <laughs> Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. He's great. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids. I um, I gave my first sermon in third grade, started traveling and speaking at 16 years old, became a pastor my senior year of high school. And uh, yeah, I love skateboarding. <laughs> there it is.
0: <laughs> awesome. So you grew up in a Christian home. You're a pastor's kid like I am. And, you know, how did you get to be a pastor now? You know, we have a stereotype about us, you know, and and how did you stay in ministry and and now be a pastor? What was that calling like on your life? That's
2: so funny you're a pastor's kid because I (laughs) I hang out with a lot of pastor's kids because I have this philosophy and metaphysic that like pastor's kids go in one of two binary directions and they're diametrically opposed. Like either you you go all agnostic or you might believe, but it's more like moralistic therapeutic Christian Smith deism or something. You know, right. you're just kind of off the rails. Or it's like you you love God zealously, but you're kind of crazy. You know what right. I mean? Like you love doing dangerous things, or you just kind of have to be anti-establishment in your own like anarchic way. So that's yeah. kind of how me and a lot of my pastors' kid friends are. We love God. It's yeah. just we're we're kind of we're kind of nutty. And you're a little
0: Um, dangerous with your skateboarding. I mean, you know, you're all over it. X
2: games. uh, Oh, well, it's so funny. One of my best friends, his name's uh, Beaver Fleming, and he does a Fleming. He invented the Fleming where He does a backflip with his body, and then he does a flip with his fingers on his board like a tech deck, so he flips his board with his fingers while doing a backflip with his body. It's crazy. But I just, uh, yeah, I, I just really believe that, like... I kind of want to redefine what the pastoral role actually looks like. I think that we've had this definitive categorization that that was a little too reductionist for my sort of Enneagram number or whatever, (laughs) where it was just kind of like, you know, you go to Starbucks and you meet with people, you preach on Sundays, you know, you, you kind of do this nine to five basic sort of thing. Although you're, you're there if, if the parishioners have needs or whatever, and while that's truly like the, like that fits the the mold for a lot of people, it just made me very depressed. It created like a cognitive dissonance mm. and where I was trying to project this outdoor to the world. that wasn't who I really was. And so, um, I want to redefine it. And like, I mean, you read about Paul, the apostle, <laughs> here was a guy who walked upwards of 20 miles a day on his missionary journeys, right? Mm. Yeah. He, he was he said, I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. So he, like the resurrected Jesus, he had scars on his body. He had like, he was so scarred from being whipped and going through rivers of perils of water and, you know, perils of robbers and, you know, scourged with whips and beaten with rods and imprisoned, canned more than tuna. I mean, he said, I'm in prison more than any of the other apostles. He, he said, I, I've been delivered out of the mouth of a lion. Yeah, I wow. mean, he he shaved his head once. They thought he brought Trophimus, the Ephesian into the temple, and he shaved his head in Jerusalem like a, like a rock star. I mean, he just was, he was a gnarly guy. He said, I have fought with beasts of emphasis and I was delivered out of the mouth of a lion. And I just think that model really makes sense to me. I have a difficult time adapting into regular society, but like, one of my favorite things to do is I do navy seal training with my friend Chad Williams who's seal team 1 and seal team 7 and and it just there's something i i love about living life extreme like extreme all the time
1: right.
2: and and so i kind of think like this is what our generation needs the scrolling generation needs uh, like living living pastors and that's what me and my friends are trying to do
0: That's cool that's a good way to put it you know um whether it's persecution or whether it's just, you know, living extreme for God and where he wants to take you and God's always moving us out of our comfort zone and so sometimes that is in extreme ways and we just have to be open to the move of the holy spirit. You're right.
2: And I you know, I believe that the true fun stuff happens at the end of our comfort zone. Yeah. And I believe that fun is fundamental and you're not going to reach new horizons unless you lose sight of the shore. And so um, and, and that's kind of like, there's over 3,500 promises in the Bible. That's kind of what Peter understood that when he was in the middle of the storm back then, the Jewish people believed that the, uh, the, the still water was the abyss. Mm. And that's why, like John says, there's no sea in heaven, all the surface like, Oh no. But in, in John's vision of heaven, there was no sea because to them, the sea represented the abyss and Leviathan sort of this demonic monstrous mythological creature. And they believed that in the new kingdom, the Messiah would come, like, serving up Leviathan for, you know, the in the Messianic kingdom. And so when Peter, like, stepped out, on they said the disciples were afraid. Now, they're fishermen. Why were they scared? To them, the water, it wasn't just that there was a raging storm. That's ostensibly and obviously evidently why they were scared, but also this, the the still water represented the abyss. They loved the living water, like Mm. the flowing water, the tree planted next to uh, rivers of water, but still water was the abyss. So when Peter stepped out on the abyss, when Jesus said, come promising him that he could come commanding him and enabling him to come. Like when he did that, that that's kind of how the promises of God, God are the Bible says the, the word is water, like husbands wash your wives in the water of, of the word Ephesians five. And, and when you step out on the promises of God, they seem as unstable as liquid, but it's not until you do something risky, uncomfortable, like mm. fun, venture, adventurous, yeah. that, that you find that what seems as unstable as liquid is actually firm as concrete and it'll, it'll hold its weight and hold up your weight, but you'll never know that so long as you're window shopping for it or just like looking at it from a distance or observing from afar. It's only when you take a risk and step out on the promises of God that they prove to work. And so that's why I love the risky life of Paul and Peter and these greats.
0: Man, that's so good. And keeping your eyes on Jesus like he did. And that's one of my favorite hashtags to use on social media is eyes on Jesus, because that's what it's all about. As soon as we take our focus off Jesus cares of the world, the carelessness of life just kind of blows by and we start to sink. You know, good can, I, can yep. I
2: interject something about that when the eyes on Jesus, that uh, comes from Hebrews 12, you know, where it says, looking unto Jesus, the yeah. author and of our faith, let us run the race with endurance. So Angela Duckworth, she's a psychologist, and she found that more than like social intelligence, IQ, good looks, or health, it's perseverance, which she defined as grit toward very long term goals that are more uh, indicative and a predictor for flourishing and success than, than any of these other things. So people Mm. think, Oh, you're just successful because you look good or, you know, because you have high IQ or because you have social intelligence or because you're healthy, but actually more of a predictor of flourishing across a range of indexes is like perseverance for very long-term goals. Mm. So that's why like the author of Hebrews says, look unto Jesus and endure yeah. The, during the race, run with endurance because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But here's what's crazy. So it uses this racing metaphor of like perseverance. That's why my message for people is give everything but up. Like that's the center of everything. Don't give up. What's crazy is back in ancient uh, Greek culture, when racers were running, they would run naked. Because it says, it says, uh, lay aside the weights and sins that so easily beset you as you run with endurance looking at Jesus. And uh, kind of like track runners today will strip off their, um, you know, up suits or whatever, yeah. or like a batter will take the donut off his bat and they would have the trophy or the back then it was like a crown of laurel leaves at the end of the track so that you could, if, let's say you were like, your breathing was labored and you were feeling exhausted and adrenally your adrenal glands were shot or whatever. If you lifted your eyes, you'd see the prize and the prize Mm. would motivate you. Like today, usually when they run, you know, they don't get, they don't see the trophy till after the fact or whatever, but but back then they put the trophy at the end of the the end of the track. And I love that idea because when it says that Jesus is the author of our faith, looking into him, our eyes are on the prize and we can always just look up and that's going to motivate us to have perseverance for very long-term goals. That's going to give us grit. And that's going to help us like in Peter's case, not sink into depression.
0: Man, that's so good. You already preached two sermons. We're only 10 minutes in. That's let's awesome. go, dude. All right. So we're going to take a step back and do a quick icebreaker. So just real quick, favorite movie of all time.
2: Can I do five? Yes. I have a top five list. Okay, okay let's so go. So Revenge of the Sith, number one. Okay. Fellowship of the Ring, number two. Uh, War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise, number three. Jumper, number four. Tron, number five. Catching fire number six and inception number seven.
0: <laughs> I see you've thought about this. That's awesome. I have. Uh, the only <laughs> only one on there surprises me is War of the Worlds, but we'll we'll accept it for purposes of this podcast. Have you seen it? Yes.
2: You didn't like it?
0: Oh, I liked it. I think you know, I saw it when it first came out, but then it just has a bad maybe stereotype now. But I'll have to watch it again. So there wait, we go. Wait, wait,
2: wait, wait. I want to know about this really quick. What do you mean? That's like my that's my top three.
0: Really? I like, don't, I'm not a
2: bad stereotype. Is it getting trolled or something?
0: I think, um, I think just Tom Cruise himself gets a lot of, you know, Oh, oh not, I see. I see. I hear what you mean.
2: Yeah. But, but watch it again. It's yeah. Spielberg at his best. I think it's Tom Cruise at his best. Dakota Fanning at her best. You have some great cast.
0: Did you ever watch the original one? No, I didn't. Oh my goodness. I, it's, it's so cheesy, I, but the, the alien in it is like this, you know, super cheesy robot. And it was so scary back then. You have to check it out, or at least YouTube that, that scene.
2: So I read the book by HG Wells. He, uh, he also wrote the book Time Machine and he invented the, he invented Martians. So yeah. the guy who wrote the book a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, he invented Martians, which is pretty gnarly.
0: That's pretty funny. All right. If you could meet anyone alive or dead, who would it be?
2: Oh, this is fun. Usually interviews are so intense. This is like, <laughs> this is a fun one. Um, if I could meet uh, Alexander the Great.
0: Okay. Just to ask him. 32
2: years old. Conquers yeah. the known world, tames a wild, untamable horse at 13 years old, you know, conquered Asia, Persia, Bactria, Asia Minor as as it was known in Paul the Apostle's day. He was the pharaoh of Egypt. I mean, he had this lion mane of hair and uh <laughs> he had different color eyes. I mean, he had like piercing eyes, was, was always his head was tilted, always looking up to the left as if his gaze was fixed on heaven. I mean, he was just a he, he, uh, he would wander in the mountains alone, seized with a longing. And I just, I really love his mindset.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. All right. What about a favorite author of yours?
2: That's impossible, but I, let, I mean,
0: let's say a book you'd recommend
2: a book I'd recommend. Gosh, well, I, I spend my life reading books, so I'll, uh, can we do a genre? Cause that'll help sure. me narrow it down. Uh, like,
0: a what, Christian book, a Christian book.
2: Okay. I'd say, um, Heretics by G.K. Chesterton or Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton.
0: Okay, awesome.
2: Oh, and Unspoken Sermons by uh, George MacDonald.
0: Okay, awesome. Love it. So we're going to move on to um, questions I ask all my guests is a time with the sermon in your life and a time that you had godly discernment and then a time you did not in an effort to help us understand maybe the process and kind of apply it to our own, even though we all have different circumstances, we all can look to godly discernment and helping us make wise decisions that honor God. So if you want to start with maybe a decision in your life where you had godly discernment and what that looked like.
2: Yeah, I think, um, I, I think when the time when I had, discernment that really changed my life is going through traumas and wanting to commit suicide and I didn't wow. <laughs> I know that's like so intense and simple but that's really true that's really true like I almost committed suicide a few times and and there was just something discernment the echo chamber for the Holy Spirit is the temple of God w- whispering into, in, into me that better things were ahead mm. and. And that's why I give my entire life to this mission is tell people not commit suicide and find hope too. I would say that's the time when, I mean, I think one of the bravest things I've ever done is not killing myself when I wanted to give up. And I think that was probably the time when I had one of the most life-changing moments of discernment when I thought my world had fallen apart, you know?
0: Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. And now God's using it for... For so much—that's that's awesome. We're going to talk more about that in your book. But what about a time that you um, did not have godly discernment, and kind of what you learned from it? The
2: time that I didn't have godly discernment is when I didn't know that I was supposed to own my oddness, and mm. I thought the heart was something that I was supposed to move away from rather than deeper into. And I think where I get that idea from is I got really involved in like the puritanical writings when I was a teenager. And like 20. And the idea of that is your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. The problem is that's in Jeremiah and that's in the old Testament. Ezekiel actually prophesied that a new covenant would come wherein he would replace our heart of stone, our hard heart and give us a heart of flesh. And Hebrews says the new covenant is that he writes his laws on the table of our heart. Paul says we can have a regenerated heart. Mm. So um, if he's writing his law on the table of our heart, if we're in the new covenant, we need to listen to what's on our heart. And I think that, you know, when we d- enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God, our plans and his dreams that he's concocting for our future sync up like Bluetooth pairing devices so that the heart is not something you move away from. It's something you move deeper into because when you delight yourself also in the Lord, he's the one who's giving you the desires of your heart.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And our heart is going to look like if we follow God's heart then our heart, like you said, gets changed from the inside. And we, we all of a sudden start looking like God, you know, thinking like God, even though we yes. never will be God, he, he implants that in us in the Holy Spirit. Huge, huge. That's so good.
2: This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's e d i f i app.
0: So, let's let's move on to your book cuz I'm really excited to talk about this. So, it's called Flirting with Darkness, which I love the name by the way because it just it calls out the the isolation that you feel in depression and how we feel like we're alone and, but it is, it is darkness and it is sometimes mostly a spiritual battle and we don't see it like that. And we have to get out of that mindset and, and expose it because God says what's in darkness will be brought to light. And if we let it. And so You confront depression head on in this book. And and so I want to start with some stats that you have, you know, to kind of ramp this up and maybe some misconceptions that people have about depression, especially among Christians.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about this, but once every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide USA today, 123 suicides per day in America alone. There are twice as many suicides as murders. Wow. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And let me show, show you one of the most insane things. In 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death in my age group. Like, so we have social activists who are trying to cure HIV. We have medical scientists trying to cure cancer. You have Russia with Sputnik V trying to cure COVID-19. But like, we don't, I don't think we're, I don't think we're awakened enough to the fact that suicide is one of the top killers right now. So, yeah. That's why my mission is to cure the disease of suicide. And I think there's two misconceptions um, that are that are equal, I, I don't know if they're equally deleterious, but I think they're equally they're they're equal misnomers, if you would, as it were. Basically, there's these two misconceptions. One is that if you're depressed, you're weak.
1: Yeah. Which
2: in the Bible, that's just not true. Like Elijah was suicidal. Jonah, I mean, remember when remember when Elijah outran Jezebel's chariot and he was like yeah. under a Juniper broom tree wanted to die? Jonah asked God to kill him. He was suicidal when a worm ate his plant. Moses said, if you continue to treat me this way, God, take my life. David was bipolar, if not borderline. Like he would dance in his linen ephod one moment before the Ark of the Covenant. And the next minute he's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you look at Paul, the apostle said, we despaired even of life. Job said, I wish I was a stillborn. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, who was nicknamed the man of sorrows, said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Now that's a provocative language. Yeah. So I think that, that people think if you're depressed, you're weak, they just need to like reread the Bible stories uh, because the opposite is true. Sometimes if you're imaginative, you can burn in your own creative fire because imagination is a mis or worry is a misuse of the imagination. So if you have a big creative imagination, there's a dark underbelly to that sometimes, which is why, like historically, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana was depressed. Janet Jackson, Greg Leganis, the Olympical medalist, Michael Phelps most decorated athlete of all time uh when it comes to the olympics he himself struggles with depression uh ernest hemingway buzz aldrin leo tolstoy right anna karenina Carrie fisher abraham lincoln winston churchill (laughs) charles spurgeon i mean on and on it goes these are all characters who struggle with depression so that's one misconception now we're beginning to lift the stigma and taboo from depression a little bit. So we're moving to another extreme. And the other extreme is that, Oh, well, it's just my authentic self to be depressed. So mm-hmm. I'm a four on the Enneagram. People say like, I'm just learning to live with my depression. It's very hipster and trendy to say that.
1: Yeah.
2: And oh, depression can't be cured. We just have to learn to live with it. And to which I would say, the psalmist didn't say, why are you cast down on my soul? Keep up the good work.
1: <laughs> right. He said,
2: why are you cast down on my soul? Hope now in God. Right. And, and and I want to give a little neuroscience behind this Daniel, uh, Amen, who did more brain scans than anyone in history. He did 83,000 brain scans over 22 year career. He said that the single most important discovery that he and his colleagues had made is that the brain can change. So through neuroplasticity, the brain can change. That's why in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel rebuked the children of Israel because they said our teeth are set on edge because our fathers ate sour grapes, which was a proverbial way of saying we're the way we are because of our ancestors, because of our dads, our yeah. fathers, our parents. And and Ezekiel was saying, No, you like there while genetic determinism plays a role, so does freedom. There's this cosmic dance where determinism is the hand you're dealt you know, freedom is how you choose to play that hand. And ultimately like we're learning the brain can change. So I think these two misconceptions, one that you're stuck with the psychological equipment. So you should just learn to live with depression is, is, is untrue in my view. And according to the neuroscience that I've studied. And then secondly, uh, that you're weak, if you struggle with depression is also just not true to history or scripture.
0: And that's so good. And you're totally right. I mean, people, mighty men of God in the Bible, you know, struggled with it. You you named all these celebrities that struggled with it. And so sometimes we have a misconception that only people that are, you know, down on their luck or having a hard time in life are the ones struggling with it. But I go back to Elijah and he had the greatest victory of all time against the prophets of Baal. And then the next scene, he's up in the mountain wanting to kill himself. And I think especially among, you know, if we take pastors, you know, that are on a Maybe having a a spiritual high or, you know, you know, having a great service. And then the enemy comes in and tries to tell him that whatever, you know, whatever trigger, you know, that Satan wants to put in our mind that gets us to question the calling that God has on our life. And so when you look at the word depression, it hasn't the word hasn't changed over the years, but the triggers for depression have changed and evolved. And and so what do you what would you say are some of the known and maybe unknown to us triggers for depression that we should be on guard about, especially in a year of 2020 when you know we've all been depressed at one time or another?
2: Uh, I think that we all have different topographical triggers that are hippocampus amygdala. They're next to each other in the brain. So the hippocampus is the seat of memory. The amygdala is the place of like fear, emotion, stress, strong emotion, stress, the rap brain, which is why like music, like when, when you, when music, it triggers these memories because the music that you're listening to, um, it, it, it brings emotion out, but your emotion center is right next to your memory center. center. So that's why music like can be a trigger for some people. Mm. Uh, for other people, it can be a location. Like I, I think about Peter, he would have looked at charcoal fires, perhaps, and been triggered into you know panic attacks. I don't right. know. There's no indication that he had panic attacks that I'm aware of. But yeah. But like, remember when he denied Jesus three times? It was next to a charcoal fire. Yeah. So what does Jesus do? A few chapters later, he builds a charcoal fire and has Peter tell him three times he loves him next mm. to another charcoal fire. That's so good. that's like the that's like the modern technique of the psychodrama where he was walking people through their topographical triggers. He was walking Peter through his topographical triggers. The number three, the charcoal fire retraining his brain, reframing his pain so that then he could have like a rewired memory sense of his trigger and reverse the curse. So I think that the Lord can take our triggers and actually cause redemption to come through those.
0: That's really good. I never thought of it that way. I mean, I, I always knew he redeemed him through asking him three times, but you know, the, the fire thing and how we kind of reframed his brain is, is a very, very true. I think way of looking at it that, you know, I think it's sometimes dismissive for people to say, well, just believe God, just, you know, just get over it. And then you're like, if you're dealing with it, you're like, okay, well, don't you think I want to get over this feeling? Like no one wants to be in a depressive state, but it's often a, uh a, a series of events that leads us there. And then we don't know how to get ourselves out. And so what would you say to people that are, that are stuck that are just in that state where, you know, they know they they face depression. They know that they should focus on God, but, and I think a lot of times, like I said, it's a, it's a spiritual battle. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's not dismissive to say, pray for somebody going through depression because that is our main weapon against spiritual in spiritual warfare. And so, you know, if you if you do know somebody going through that, definitely pray for them and don't just say, you know, hashtag praying or, you know, I'll pray for you, brother. Like actually do it. Like actually get on your knees before God and pray for somebody who's going through that. But I'll turn it over to you as far as how someone kind of gets themselves out of that mindset.
2: Yeah, I, I believe movement creates motivation. And sometimes we wait for motivation to start moving. And uh one of the things like you're talking about prayer being a big deal in spiritual warfare well that's actually a big deal neuro neurobiologically like i believe there are psycho spiritual transrational forces playing on our neurobiochemistry like i really do believe that that the battlefield is on the mind and uh or the battle is on the is on uh, the battle the battlefield of the mind is what i'm saying right and actually this is crazy but cat scans are showing us that like prayer can change your brain so Like I love to go on prayer walks. And when you talk to God about your hopes, fears and dreams, it has the same effect scientifically on your brain as, um, as therapy, which is crazy. That's crazy. Like that's what science (laughs) is now finding. And that like, when you pray to a loving God or meditate on a benevolent God, a kind loving God, like you develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex, which is where creative thinking is located and planning, cognition, the captaining of the overall ship. you have, Um, more blood flow to your interior cingulate cortex, which is where empathy and compassion are located and warm and fuzzy feelings. You don't put someone on your hit list. You put on your prayer list and you also have like less, less uh, activity in your amygdala, the part of your brain responsible for fear, anger, and stress and high blood pressure. So this is what research is now showing us that like going on prayer, like having prayer times, if it's to a loving God. Can change your brain in fact if you talk intentionally you're loving god science has shown that the frontal lobe of your brain activates into its highest intellectual capacity and you actually boost your brain power through prayer so prayer is a very very powerful weapon to defeat the dark lord of depression yeah
0: it's almost like god who designed our brains and our minds knows what he's talking about when he, and he gives must. these instructions in the bible you know and, and we we dismiss him like oh, i don't need to do that well I mean you're you're showing us through science that yes we do need to and and we were just on a, a men's retreat and uh i was called to lead the prayer walk early in the morning and at first i saw the time is like i don't want to get up that early and so i thought maybe five guys would show up and there was like 30 guys there and we walked you know two by two on a prayer walk in a beautiful you know forest and it was it was wonderful and i heard so much good feedback and i felt it too just getting out and walking, like you're saying, and and focusing on God for an hour or, or whatever time you can commit to that. Um, you know, we did it the next day. And so many people took that home, I think, as far as, and I heard from other people too, like, I've never prayed that long in one sitting. It felt It felt great. It felt so connecting to God. By just getting whether you're in a prayer closet or out in nature, like whatever you need to do to connect to God. And the Bible says to pray without ceasing. And so if you can have a dedicated time, great. Otherwise, take God with you throughout the day. You know, a lot of times in my life too, I felt like, well, I need to dedicate this 15 minutes to God. And, and if you can, like I'm saying, great. But what about when I'm at work or what about when I'm driving? What about when I'm angry at my kids? Or what about when I'm so tired at night that I I forget God? You know, all those times we should constantly be in prayer or at least turning to prayer when when we uh when we need to both to rejoice uh and also to to ask god you know ask seek and knock
2: yeah it's interesting because that you mentioned pray without ceasing so the ineffable tetragrammaton is the name is, is what god's name is in jewish consciousness and it wasn't something you were supposed to say it's it's the it's the unutterable name right. and so the, the there's no vowels there's only consonants in the name of god it's like in the hebrew written language that's how it is there's only y-h-w-h right and it's not something you say it's something you breathe so it would sound like this yah, way. Mm. right like you yeah. breathe in Yah, you breathe out way and uh, so when people are like how do you pray without ceasing well all through the day <laughs> you're breathing the name breathing. of god so when atheists are like there's no God. Let me begin my a priori, a posteriori, inductive, deductive, dialectic reasoning as to why <laughs> I'm an atheist. Okay, let me take a deep breath and let's go. Yeah. And he's like breathing the name of God. That's like cognitive dissonance. Or, um, you know, the first word you ever said is the name of God. Maybe you mm. die not when you stop breathing, but when you can no longer say the name of God. Yeah. And, and that's why the word for spirit and breath is the same word in every major language. Ruah in Hebrew, Pneuma mm. in Greek. Um, and that's why Jesus breathed on his disciples yeah. and they gave them the spirit mm-hmm. and the spirit prays through us with breaths or groanings that cannot be uttered. When Paul said, godliness with contentment is great game. The word picture in Greek is of a little baby giving a contented sigh in the arms of its daddy. And mm-hmm. God is our Abba father. We're in the everlasting arms and he prays through us with groanings or breaths that cannot be uttered like the sigh of a baby. That's the Greek word picture. So I just think when people say, where is God? When my heart is hurting that's like asking what shape is yellow god is as near to you as your next breath
0: mm. man so good so good everyone's going to need to replay this uh, podcast cuz there's so many good things in there cool so we're going to we're going to keep talking about you know how to get out of this state of depression and and one of the things you talk about is finding a tribe of friends and family to be accountable with So can you talk about why this is so important for every Christian, whether, and I think whether you're struggling with depression or not, finding a a tribe, an accountability group, you know, we have a, what we call a covenant group, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, it's so important.
2: Yeah. That's so important. Like it says that Daniel had an excellent spirit in the Bible. And it also says separately that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit. Mm. Now, why does it describe them the same way? Because they hang out with each other Yeah, and spirits are transferable. So Daniel had an excellent spirit and separately Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had excellent spirits because they hung out with each other. Spirits are transferable. Like uh, Edison, Firestone, and Ford, they all had uh, summer homes next to each other in Florida because dreamers need to flock together. The Bible says, walk with the wise, become wise. A companion a fool suffers harm. You run with scums, you're going to smell like one. Like you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So So I was very depressed for a long time because I hung out with depressing people. I mean, Mm. I'm not, I'm not talking about your family or, you know, not reaching out to people, but I'm talking about the friendships that are going to influence you, the friendships that you're investing in. Like I really invest in hopeful people because I know that that's something that I not only need, but need to inspire other people to live that way as well. So it really wasn't more ontological, metaphysical debates or existential navel gazing that healed me of depression. It was just some crazy friends with skateboards that showed me life could be fun again.
0: Man, that's so good. And you know, my wife and I were, we were in that state, you know, we're going to church, we knew people, but we didn't really have that core group of people until maybe about two, three years ago. And I didn't, she, she knew she needed it. I didn't think I needed it because I'm like, you know, I'm a guy, I'm fine. I don't need, I don't need close friends. And and once you get it, you kind of realize what you're missing. And so that's why I really, really push, you know, with the, with the men I come in contact with is, is get in an accountability group. And that doesn't mean it could mean whatever you want it to mean. It just means someone you can talk with when things come up, you know, we have it structured once a month where we meet, but we also stay in contact with throughout the month. It's not just a one-time thing, but Um, because like you said, if you just, if you isolate, that's, that breeds all kinds of things, including depression, because you start to just focus on yourself. And, and when you're, when you're focusing on yourself, you're selfish, you're not looking to God, you're just looking to yourself and why, why everything is so bad instead of, you know, pushing it against somebody who can tell you, you know, man, maybe they tell you man up, maybe they tell you, you know, you know, knock it off. Maybe they tell you, you know, let's pray right now, you know, whatever that looks like. That dynamic is so important to kind of get you out of that phase.
2: Well, that's why Proverbs says, he who isolates himself is not wise.
0: Mm,
2: Yep. I really do believe that darkness festers in isolation, you know, and um, sometimes we think we want to disappear, but what we really want is just to be found. Yeah. You know, I think, I think sometimes we're like, oh, I just long for solitude. And, And I, listen, I do spend large swaths of my time alone as well. Um, I live on airplanes pretty much. So I spend <laughs> a lot of time by myself, yeah. but I try to even travel places where I have a lot of friends, you know, um, because I, I don't think what we need more of for the most part is solitude. We need solidarity.
1: Mm.
0: Good. And so last thing I want to ask you is what would you, you know, if you know someone that is struggling with depression, what is a good way that you can connect with them? Maybe they're pushing you back. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want you in their life. What is a good way to kind of make it happen? I want to say, I don't know. What is a good way to, uh, you know?
2: Yeah. Like how, like, like how do you connect with people who are depressed, but they're pushing you away and they're isolating. Yeah. Um, actually I get asked this question a lot and I'm so glad I do because it's really important because I think people who don't struggle with depression can feel helpless. Like, how do I help this person? I think first of all, you have to understand what it is. So, uh, did you know the brain processes feelings of emotional hurt and strong feelings of self rejection as physical pain? Mm. So so the people are like, why would you be suicidal? Well, have you ever been in so much, I, like one time I was in so much physical pain from a food toxin on an airplane. I was carried away by an ambulance and on a stretcher and like was like heaving on the side of the road. It was gnarly. <laughs> and I remember I just wanted to die. I'm like, yeah. I would rather die than, it's, it's euthanasia basically. And I think a lot of people have been there where they've been in so much physical suffering. They're like, you know what? I'd actually rather like just end the pain and the misery. So it's like a mercy killing. Well, that's actually what the brain thinks. So your brain is tricked into registering strong emotional hurt and self emotions of self rejection, feelings of self rejection, it's physical pain. So when you understand that, it, it creates so much more compassion.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think that's what people who are hurting me, they need that compassion. Another thing is when, when, when people are like, oh, well, they're just threatening suicide because they want attention. My whole thing is if they are so depressed that they're threatening suicide and that's how badly they need to be seen, then that's all the more reason not to judge them, but to listen to them and show them that you see them. You know, yeah. like Hagar nicknamed God El Roy, the God who sees when she was dying in the wilderness and God rescued her. So I think that's another thing is like be slow to speak, swift to listen, the proverbs say. I think James says it too, but just be slow to speak and swift to listen, like really listen listen to the hurts of, 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 of what they're going through. And you don't have to have all the answers, just being there. Right. Like, like Job's friends, when they got in troubles, when they started talking, it's, it's when they were sitting in the ashes for seven days and seven nights. That's when, that's when they were good friends. After that, they became miserable comforters. I'm not saying you shouldn't give answers. There does come a time where, you know, that, that plays a huge role. Um, but another thing is that I'm a big believer in this. Like, professional counseling it blows my mind to this day how people think professional counseling is anti-biblical it's like where in the world did we see we get that in fact the bible says in the multitude of counselors there is safety the more counselors there are the safer you're going to be so i I just think that um you know i i just want to really encourage your listeners because i know this from going through 10 years of clinical depression is and, and god has healed my heart is that the people who listened to me with no judgment and stood with me and really helped me practice the talk, and I could just talk my way through it. That was massive in helping me get better. And I want to say, you can get better, even if yeah. you think you can't. Like God is Jehovah Roth, the God who heals. He has the healing balm of Gilead. And I want to Amen. say, if God could heal my broken heart, he can heal anybody. After my sister died, after my brother died, after complex PTSD, I literally thought, I, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And, and yet God gave me healing and hope when I thought I had no chance and, um, he can do that for anyone listening as well.
0: Wow. What a great message. Yeah. I would definitely, you know, piggyback on that where even counseling in my life is, is good to go to someone who can go through steps with you or just listen in a way that is productive. And also mm-hmm. I had yeah. a friend who went through depression for about three months and, you know I would reach out to him over text and stuff, and he's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And what he told me at the end of those three months when he got out of it and God healed him of that 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 depression uh, window was he, he he said, I really wanted someone to come over to my house and show up at my doorstep and say, I'm here for you, even if I didn't ask for it. And that really stuck in my mind because in my mind, like, well, I don't want to be a bother, I don't want to just, you know, barge my way into your house. But in his mind, in that depressive state, that is what he needed. And so you know, I'll throw that out there for what it's worth. It just, that stuck with me. And I'm not saying, you know, go raid your friend's house, but maybe, maybe you should, you know, use discernment, but you know, sometimes people just want you to go above and beyond to be there for them in a way that is sometimes um, what we would consider intrusive.
2: I agree with you. And it's better to err on that side, right? Yeah, for It's sure. better to err on that side than, you know, someone commits suicide. And, um, and I just think that you're, you're really hitting the nail on the head. And I believe that we can turn this thing around as a generation. And that's why slowly but surely, I love turning, turning the keel of the ship because the truth of the matter is we're not going to go down as the mope generation. We're going to go down as the hope generation. That's why I wake up every morning to fight this battle. So I really believe that even this is going to go a long way in helping people.
0: Amen. Praise God. There is hope around the corner. And uh, just let everyone know where they can get your book and connect with you.
2: Yeah. So at my website, bencorson.com. And I do want to say in the book, uh, I really lay out, it's set in three stages. The first is me telling my story and sharing some stories of people who have struggled with depression. The second part is 11 weapons to defeat the dark lord of depression. So wow. people aren't just like, oh, great. You empathize with me, but I have no answers. No, I give like a, the 11 things that help me out of depression. And then the third part is uh, just hope it's called dancing in the light. So um, that, I mean, I, 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 one of the reasons I wrote this is because that's one of the chief questions I get asked is how do how do you overcome depression? So. Literally, you can just find all the Hope Generation stuff and my books at at my website, bencorson.com.
0: Love it. I'll put it in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and what you're doing in, in spreading the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. God bless you.
2: You too. God bless, my friend.
0: Well, that's going to do it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star review. Also get my free devotional called Eyes on Jesus. I'll have a link in the show notes, and you can also go to eyesonjesusdevotional.com. And for next week, I talked to Darren Gray. He's been in sports marketing at All Pro Dad for over 25 years in various forms of media. And he's now on the leadership team at Athletes in Action. And he co-authored the book, The Jersey Effect. So we're going to talk to him next week. Until then, go with God, grow in discernment, and keep your eyes on Jesus.
1: Thank you for listening to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. For more information on Discerning Dad, go to discerning-dad.com. Be sure to follow on all the social media platforms. Just search for Discerning Dad. Please share this podcast with a friend and leave an honest review on whichever platform you listen. Feel free to send any comments, suggestions, questions, or prayer requests at, at outlook.com. Until next time. Keep fighting the good fight.